Welcome back to the Independent Inquiry Podcast, where we explore the ins and outs of practitioner research in independent school classrooms. I'm Christina Tucker, Program Coordinator for the Independent School Teaching Residency Program, also known as ISTAR, at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. And I'm Sonia Rosen, Director of Inquiry and Reflective Practice for ISTAR. In these next two episodes, we take a close look at how teacher researchers translate specific frameworks from the academic and professional literature into a means of collecting data and thinking differently about their classroom practice. Today you'll hear segments from Ian Mook, Chris Brown, and Maggie Bland, all of whom turned to scholarly literature to identify frameworks that became instrumental in their work. So I was chatting with a fellow today, and I described practitioner inquiry as uh, you know, doing what teachers normally do, but on steroids. Okay, that sounds interesting. Like, talk to me more about that. Like, what's the role of scholarly literature in a, in a project like this? Normally, what we do as, as practitioners in a classroom is, you know, we teach, we try things out, we collect data normally just by, like... Love that. Yeah, lo- reading student work and stuff. And then we try out new things. We realize what's not landing for students, what's not, you know, feeling right. You know, in practitioner inquiry it's a little bit more systematic. Scholarly literature helps us frame what we do a little bit differently. I love that explanation. And I think we should talk about like, what are segments today look like? How do they work with the frameworks that they've identified or the lenses of scholarly literature and how they're sharing it with, you know, their students as a way of them getting them to think critically about their own learning and their place in the classroom. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting because scholarly literature can serve different purposes, right? Like on the one hand, right. On the one hand, we, we know that we're standing on the shoulders of giants. That was what we say in research. Right? It's a funny statement. Classic statement. It's true, right? We don't want to. We don't want to think that we've just created everything from scratch. Like we have to acknowledge where you know our knowledge came from, right? Absolutely. But also, you know, scholarly literature can do other things for us too. Sometimes we turn to the literature to get ideas for our practice. Like you know, I'm going to use this intervention, or I'm going to you know, try out this idea in my classroom. And all of these teachers in the segments that we're going to be hearing today have kind of, you know, identified a specific framework or a lens that they're, you know, that they're interested in Mm -hmm. in the literature. And they've really been purposeful about sharing it with students and, and saying, here is this thing like growth mindset or something, or in, you know, in Chris's case, opportunity cost, right? And saying, I'm going to, I'm going to be thinking about what we're doing in the classroom together through this lens. And I'd like you to think about that too. So then you get both teachers thinking about that framework. And then you also have the added benefit of the students using that framework to sort of thinking about how they, their own learning and how that works and like what processes the teachers are using there. Yeah, I love that about these segments. I think it's, it really like highlights how students can be a partner in our research. These segments are quite banging, if I could borrow a phrase (laughs) from popular culture. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about our first segment. Yeah, so Ian, um, we heard his voice actually in a previous episode because he participated in Sunho Park's um, segment. Right. And, you know, that just shows how collaborative this whole process is, right? Fellows are really thinking together with other teachers about what they do. but, you know, what I love about this segment is that Ian is really, like, curious about his students' problem-solving mm. process. Yeah. Curiosity is incredibly important in teaching, and I think our fellows really bring that to their teaching and to their inquiry projects as well. I agree. They're all so smart. <laughs> they really are. I am blown away by how smart they are. In this segment, I do love that 
you know, he took this framework of problem solving and he actually introduced it to the students and had them and had them reflect on their own problem solving using exactly the same frameworks that he was using to analyze their own their understandings and the way that they were approaching problem solving. So it's like a two for one deal on the framework using. <laughs> it's like you get a little bit of both from both ends. I think that's great. The project it becomes so layered because he's learning something and they're really learning something from what he's learning too. Yeah. And they're all yeah. like using their own learning experiences to enrich each other's learning. Yes, I totally agree. I so think exciting. that's a great way to say it. Yeah. So let's uh, let's hear Ian's segment now. Hi, my name is Ian Mook, and I'm a high school math teacher at the Lawrenceville School. And this is my podcast, Running Into Walls, about my students' approaches to problem solving. I believe we should study math if for no other reason than just for the opportunity to get stuck on problems. Getting stuck helps us become more resilient and creative problem solvers, as well as forcing us to face our own doubts and weaknesses. A good math problem has a way of teasing out not only how much content you've created enduring understandings of, but it also gives students a snapshot of how they think, how they parse information, and how they synthesize ideas. A good problem that is well-suited for a student's optimal engagement will put them through a number of different stages. First comes comprehension. What is the problem even asking? Then comes questioning. What do I need to do? What do I need to know? Can I do this? What happens if I can't do this? A healthy dose of anxiety is not at all a bad thing at this point in a problem solver's thinking. It can help stimulate that next level of their thinking. The next phase is productive struggle. Students are more likely to fight through their confusion or doubt if they respond to such confusion with questioning, not stagnation. Regardless of what new ideas you have, following them will take you somewhere new and somewhere more interesting. Sometimes that's as far as a problem solver can get on a given day. Sometimes you might need to take a walk or have a meal with a friend, and then the end of that maze all of a sudden becomes illuminated. It just took some time and a change of perspective. Other times, you're able to keep pulling at threads until the object unravels and the solution just sits there, right in front of you. For this podcast, I will give voice to my students' experiences in the first phase of their problem solving. How do they respond to tough problems? What are the thoughts and initial actions they turn to when they first see a problem that challenges them? In a recent class, I asked my students to construct a mathematical model for a given set of data points. The data came from a set of observations scientists have been recording at the top of Mauna Loa, a volcano in Hawaii. The data describes the increasing accumulation of carbon dioxide released into the Earth's atmosphere at the rim of the volcano. The 60-year data set forms this beautiful curve, a real-world application of a topic we had recently studied in trigonometry. The curve that connects the data is frequently called the Keeling curve. After their work on the Mauna Loa problem, I asked my students to complete a survey about their experience. The responses were beautiful. I was awestruck by how reflective and honest they were. To preserve the authenticity of their thought and to give voice to their productive struggle, I gathered together a group of my peer teachers to read selected responses. I hope to illuminate common threads and validate my students' hard work. So if we can just go around and each read one response, I hope we can give voice to and to better understand my students' work. Solving the problem today was difficult because at first, I didn't even know where to start. Often in my other classes, the problems or topics we discuss have some direction, and I know where to begin, but math is different. As a result, when I do come across these problems in class, I can become frustrated and discouraged about not, re not receiving the correct answer. However, because we, because we practice these problems in class, my approach to these problems 
is improving. Working on the model Lowell problem today was actually really rewarding because I was really proud of myself for putting all the separate pieces together. Also, the fact that the example not only showed the applications of these concepts to real life, but also for an issue as relevant and pressing as climate change was really fascinating. It felt very challenging to work on today's model lower problem because I didn't really have any idea how to start or where to go. I think it felt uncomfortable almost not knowing exactly what to do and having to sit there and think if I could write down to show the teacher I was at least trying. Um, it is difficult to take a leap and throw something at the wall knowing that you could be 100% wrong and not on the right track at all. But it beats having a blank sheet of paper because at least you know one approach that does not work. When first given the problem, I was partially tripped up because of the serious scientific look of the data. I didn't even allow myself to read and think through the problem before I determined it was too hard or too complex for my level. This mental block inhibited my ability to think through the problem clearly and objectively, focusing on what I don't know instead of what I do know. After reading through the problem a couple of times and realizing I have the skills necessary to solve the problem, my mental state changed to a more positive mindset thinking I can do it with hard work and lots of attempts, rather than I can't do this problem at all. This flip in my mindset helped me get a good start on a problem that if I had for homework, I might have just skipped over after reading a couple of times and giving up. Today's problem generally made sense, and I thought I knew how I should go about doing it. If I'd had more time, I think I actually would have been able to get there without an awful amount of grief. The other ones, they really feel like hitting a wall, and I just bash into that wall looking for little cracks. That crack is like when I find something in the problem and I follow that until I feel like I really solved it. When you guide us, it's usually, for me anyways, more like opening a door in the wall instead of putting in some cracks, because your approach is always streamlined. Whereas my way, well, it might get me there, but it's a whole lot more ugly. It just occurred to me that maybe if you showed us different approaches to the problem, and you could totally crowdsource them if you wanted, but that would also help a lot, because it'd just be like putting a bunch of cracks in that wall. I guess it'd be like working with a whole class instead of slamming into that plaster or brick all alone. Honestly, sometimes if I run at it and bounce off and there's not even a dent, I feel really stupid and alone in that class. Because I feel like everyone in that class is so damn smart and clever and bright that it's like they brought a chisel and hammer to com compare it to me and my shoulder. So we have students who acknowledge their own intimidation by the problem. Each of them finding their own way forward, either with more practice, productive failure, self-awareness, or just plain persistence. The final student describes the way that effective collaboration and thoughtful scaffolding of a task can illuminate the way forward. Because for some problems, some students are momentarily more well-equipped for the challenge than others. And others might find themselves more like that second student, feeling really prideful and compelled by their own work. This, too, validates the importance of these worthy challenges. This pride would not have been felt so strongly in a simpler problem. Thanks for listening to my podcast. So for our next segment, we have Chris Brown. Let's talk a little bit about he, how he uses uh, the framework of opportunity cost and how it drives the way that he's understanding his inquiry question and interpreting his data. What do we get and what do we give up when we make a particular choice in our teaching? Yeah, I love this because he's thinking about it in terms of his teaching and his students are also thinking about it in terms of the classroom environment and the class culture that's been created with humor. It's like a wonderful way of thinking about humor in the classroom. I had never thought about creating humor in this way.
Aside from your always hilarious self. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm a very funny person. That's just a natural integration for you. Definitely. Yeah. I laugh at my own jokes all the time. So. And that's humor. So <laughs> that's how you do it. You know, he really does a great job integrating his inquiry as part of helping his students actually apply a deeper understanding of a concept that they're discussing in their own class. Uh, because opportunity cost is an economics concept. Right. He's teaching them economics through, again, they're all doing that kind of circle of learning and helping each other learn by observing each other's learning. Let's take a listen to Chris's segment. A key idea in the study of economics is that of opportunity cost. Opportunity cost can't be found on a price tag or put on sale. Rather, it's what we give up in order to get something. The opportunity cost of a college education is not simply the $70,000 per year it might cost someone in tuition, room, and board. It's also the $30,000 in foregone wages that such a student gives up in order to go to college. What do we give up to get something? This is at the heart of economic thinking and drives human decision-making every day. And so, if my inquiry is centered around the effects of humor in an economics classroom, this is the perfect place to apply the idea. What is the opportunity cost of humor in the classroom? According to Sarah Henderson of Edutopia, neuroscience research reveals that humor systematically activates the brain's dopamine reward system, and cognitive studies show that dopamine is important for both goal-oriented motivation and long-term memory. While educational research indicates that correctly used humor can be an effective intervention to improve retention in students from kindergarten through college. Lots of research has been done on humor in the classroom, the focus on the positives it can bring to the fore. But in the true spirit of an economics classroom, let's dive into a cost-benefit analysis of humor. First off, why should we use it? I think what, like, how I mentioned before is like a low pressure environment. Like, the class isn't easy. It's still a challenging class, but like, when I walk in there, it's not like, daunting. Yeah, I feel like I can do it just because like, like there's a, a, a comfortable environment in the classroom. This student is not alone in believing that humor lowers the perceived stakes in educational spaces. John Bannis of the University of Oklahoma asserts that humor functions as a coping mechanism. Individuals who can see the amusing sides of problems are more adept at coping with stress. But beyond lowering stress, humor can actually help our content knowledge. Like, I kind of actually, uh, actually like, like that, um, mm -hmm. just because like, when we're going through kind of stuff that's kind of confusing or can mm -hmm. kind of like, uh, like be strenuous and like, kind of like takes a while to like understand, mm -hmm. like throwing in a little joke or like something that, like humor that relates to what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. It actually like kind of lightens the mood and like it actually kind of can help you relate like when you're studying like go back and, like oh like remember that thing that was actually like wicked funny like mm -hmm. now I kind of get like where he's going with that and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Students clearly see the retention benefits of a humorous classroom and express their preference toward a learning space that fosters laughs. But what's the downside? I think I think the opportunity cost of using humor in the class is that you give up like maybe like by the end of the, by the end of the year mm -hmm. looking at it you gave up maybe like a couple minutes that you could have been like learning yeah. more sure. like i think you give that up mm -hmm. but at the same time i think you gained like so much more mm -hmm. 
Well, I think one thing is you give up like having the opportunity to have you know like that strict rigorous classroom style yeah. where it's just full on learning, like mm-hmm. attention, just absorb knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get that has its perks too. Um, just you're like more in the zone when every time you come to class. Yeah. Um, she really try to focus, but I don't know. I'd rather have like a lighthearted environment. Yeah. yeah, I mean I agree. I think that I would much rather have this class mm-hmm. than like it be way more strict. But I think you do give up like the seriousness that mm-hmm. it affords like outside of the classroom. Like people may be like, oh, it's like it's econ homework. Don't worry about it. Just because the class is more lighthearted, where if like it was it was like super strict, like oh you like have to do a worksheet every night and it's collected and graded, then it's just I'm I'm glad that it is the way that it is, but you definitely lose some element of seriousness. So is it worth it? The real answer, and one that students of economics will be familiar with, is frustratingly, it depends. What kind of humor is it? Is it relevant? Do your students connect with it? Is it too disruptive? How do your students view your identity as a teacher? This complex set of factors will lead teachers in different classrooms to unique conclusions about the efficacy of humor in their own. There is no magic formula. The key for each teacher is to find the right recipe for their students. Thanks for listening. Final segment today uh, is is a great one to end with. You know, we we talked about growth mindset in the last episode as well, and uh, Maggie also thinks a lot about growth mindset in her project. It's sort of the framing idea of her project. She begins by really laying out the research on girls and growth mindset because she teaches in an all-girls school, you know, and, and that's a real framework that she begins with. Then there's part of that she actually brings to her students. And these are, you know, pretty young students, and she's talking about growth mindset and how the way they think about their own learning actually impacts, you know, what they're able to learn and how they're able to go about engaging in the class. I really loved how she translates her work with her students and also those kinds of discussions that you would have with your fellow teachers and colleagues to like a new set of recommendations, kind of bringing both conversations and both texts into her room and thinking about how you would combine both of those things to have this growth mindset growing in her classroom. Yeah, and it's so true. It feels like, again, it's so layered, right? It feels like there's something happening for her in this. And there's definitely something happening for her students, and it's because they're talking about these frameworks. It's like being a teacher is always learning and always teaching. Oh my gosh. I can't even, can you believe it? Genuinely, who would have thought? We would have thought. It's kind of our jobs to think that. (laughs) It is, sort of. (laughs) Wrap up our episode with Maggie's segment. I'm so bad at this. I'm going to fail. I'm just not a language person. Do these statements sound familiar? I hear statements like these from my students every single day. What all of these expressions have in common is that they embody a fixed mindset. According to Carol Dweck, the leading researcher who defined the concept of fixed and growth mindset, students with a fixed mindset believe that people are born with a set amount of intelligence and it cannot be changed. Alternatively, in her own words, Students with a growth mindset believed that intelligence can be developed and intellectual ability can grow. 
Carol Dweck's research has shown that having a growth mindset leads to increased academic performance, confidence, and persistence. However, internalizing a growth mindset is a challenging task, especially for the specific population of adolescent girls, such as the ones I teach at my all-girls independent school. Research by Demore in 2017 actually showed that girls do in fact internalize failure at higher rates than their male counterparts, resulting in lower levels of self-confidence. What's interesting about this finding is that this lack of confidence is not due to academic ability. In fact, research by Halverson in 2011 revealed that at the fifth grade level, girls routinely outperform boys in every subject, including math and science. The only difference was how bright boys and girls interpreted difficulty. Girls were much quicker to doubt their ability to lose confidence and to become less effective learners as a result. For middle school girls, confidence is a necessary component for both positive well-being as well as effective learning. As research by the Lego Foundation shows confidence is related to forming deeper understandings, greater motivation, and student enjoyment. Given the evidence suggesting that the severe decline in confidence observed in high-achieving middle school girls is not related to academic ability, but instead to the perceived ability, competence, and difficulty of the situation at hand, in addition to the tendency to internalize failure, my inquiry project this year will focus on ways to shift my female students' mindsets around their academic ability in order to promote student confidence. One of the main tactics I will employ to inspire confidence in my students is through promoting a growth mindset. So, after I identified a way to combat one of the main tensions I observed in my first year of teaching, I started overtly discussing growth mindset with my 5th to 7th grade students. When I asked the entire 7th grade if they knew what a growth mindset was, only two girls raised their hands. So, my first goal was to share the definition of and expressions showcasing growth mindset in my classroom. I hung up posters with growth mindset expressions and went through each one in detail with my students multiple times. Now, before I hand back a test or quiz, which all of my students complete corrections on, we talk about the exact words and phrases we'll say to ourselves when we see something circled suggesting a mistake or an opportunity to learn. These expressions include, I will use my mistakes for my learning, mistakes are proof that I'm trying, and I don't understand this yet. Walking through positive self-talk with students will help them transfer the skills they are learning in class to their personal lives. A few weeks after my most explicit discussions with my class about the growth mindset, I set out an end-of-trimester feedback survey to all of my students, which included the question, in your own words, what is a growth mindset? Here is what some of them said. Getting something wrong or not knowing how to do it, but still trying to improve. It's when you think that you can grow from challenges and learn from your mistakes. Also, to not be super hard on yourself all the time and just breathe and say, I can do this. When you get questions wrong, you keep working at your goal, never giving up. Being able and ready to learn from your mistakes and from advice teachers or peers may give you. Taking risks, even when you're unsure. A growth mindset is the thought that making mistakes are okay and being able to adapt when you're wrong. Being able to say, I might not, be, might not be able to do this yet, but eventually I'll get it. Instead of thinking things like, I can't do this, I'm stupid. Instead, thinking, I don't know this, but I will ask questions and do what I need to do to learn it. A growth mindset is recognizing that learning takes time and not getting angry when you can't get things right at first. And finally, 
A growth mindset is a girl who thinks yet, always yet. So after having heard from my students, I wanted to speak with educators at my school about how they saw growth mindset manifesting itself in their classrooms and around campus. One teacher, who I know is particularly interested in growth mindset, joined me in buying classroom decorations with sayings displaying the growth mindset. Here are a few of her additional suggestions for incorporating growth mindset into your classroom. Number one, emphasize growth mindset equally for all students, regardless of their level of understanding at the given moment. This is not just for students who are struggling. Two, be explicit from the beginning and in the course policy sheet that you as a teacher want to see growth no matter where a student starts. Progress matters. Three, as a teacher, make Take the time to stop and address every teachable moment you can, from celebrating failures to adding yet to statements showcasing a fixed mindset. Four, frame the grades as progress made versus point lost. For example, I use a pie model. Don't think of four out of eight on a quiz as a statement of your worth. Think of it as your friend brings you half a pie. Aren't you psyched? You have so much more pie than you started with. Five, do heavy quiz reflections before handing back quizzes and hiding grades on last pages and not using percentages. I also incorporate something similar to this by using practice tests without grades before the real assessment. Then my students and I take two days between to reteach and relearn the concepts that were missed the first time in order to really learn from our mistakes. In another conversation I had with an administrator who is also a teacher and a coach, she has noticed that the growth mindset is stronger for her students before you throw an assessment into the mix. In other words, students can embrace growth mindset until the grade or test is on the table. Then that is all they're focused on. In her words, the ability to compare is what eats away at growth mindset. Teachers can combat this tension through low stakes and practice testing, as well as language encouraging and praising effort and progress over a grade and incorporating progress folders or reflections to get students to use the feedback from assessments to further their understanding and learning. I hope these tips and experiences you think, help you think about how you are applying the growth mindset in your school. Before I end, I would like to ask you to reflect about how you, you yourself are embracing the growth mindset in your own life. Do you model using mistakes as opportunities for learning to yourself and to your students? We can only teach the growth mindset if we ourselves understand it, practice it, and value it. And not to worry if you haven't started this in your own school or you are struggling to embrace the growth mindset yourself. You just haven't done it yet. our three segments for this episode. They're only part of a two-part episode that we mentioned earlier. We're going to be continuing this exploration of the relationship between literature and data collection in the next episode, uh, episode four of Independent Inquiry. Absolutely. So get ready for that. If you, in the meantime, would like to learn more about the iStar program and the practitioner inquiry portion of our curriculum, you can take a look at the links that we've included in our program notes. want to give a thanks to the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education for its support of the iStar program and of this podcast. Thanks also to our iStar program faculty, including all the program directors, mentors, and other teaching faculty who have helped guide our fellows throughout this process. Independent Inquiry is produced by me, Sonia Rosen, and Christina Tucker. Our logo was designed by iStar alumna Kaylee McGonigal, and our music is Big Easy Horns by Origami Pigeon. Thanks for listening. Until next time.
I really had to stop myself from saying peace out. I also did. That's why I just did the peace sign. (laughs) 